Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, divers. Welcome to the Diving In podcast. Louise and I are sitting in her study slash studio with uh, cappuccinos and muffins. And uh, it's a beautiful sunny day in Perth. And it's now spring in Australia, which is really one of my favourite times in Perth. It's just so beautiful. It's incredibly lovely. And there are magnificent wildflowers coming out everywhere. So today we have the books in our theme, which I'll come back to in a moment. I have a a life hack or what I've been employing in the Mm. last few weeks. And we've got a few other things that we've been diving into recently. But I thought that, well, I would start off with some feedback that we've had, particularly in relation to our last episode. We were discussing Desert Island Discs, yes. the fact that they give a Bible to everyone, and Polly Phillips very kindly contacted us to say that Desert Island Discs do, in fact, give other religious texts to interviewees who practice a non-Christian religion. So that was good to know. Yeah, very good to know. And Polly, of course, is the author that we yes. reviewed earlier My in the Friends My Murder. Best Friend's Murder. Yes. Uh, so I don't know what they do with people who do not practice religion, but... Maybe someone will let me know that as well because I, I just dive in and out of Desert Island. Yes, I do so too. Haven't, I haven't listened to a whole run of them, mm. so I'm not sure what the answer and, is. And I still don't understand Desert Island. Yes. But anyway. It should be deserted. Could island. someone else, Polly, maybe you know well, why yeah. it's Desert Island Discs. And not deserted Is it island. an island in the desert? I just don't, yeah. I just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> and then the other thing that happened with our feedback was that uh, in support of my big call that I made about the number of characters in fiction that are named Alice, several listeners have contacted us with characters named Alice in various books which I just loved. I thought that was so wonderful. So thank you and keep them coming. I'm making a list because now that I've made such a big call, I have to back it yes, up. you do. <laughs> so that's been terrific. So today's theme is books in translation. We've been reading the world. And for today's conversation, we've been reading books that have been translated into English from another language at a time when we're reminded to read plenty of own voices mm works, reading books that have been translated is, is I think, the ultimate form of own voices work that we can read, unless you're fortunate enough to be able to read in many different languages, which not a lot of Australians can do. I have a theory, which may be incorrect, but I think that reading a book that has been written in an author's own language often means that it captures most closely the sensibility of that yeah, country yeah. or that culture. Because the translator has to understand the context and the I language. I think they're writing it for their own voice and yes. their own people yes. and they're not perhaps distracted by trying to explain anything to yes. another culture. They're just perhaps absorbed in, I don't know, 
It's mm. just the way I, I sort of picture it being done. And then the translator has to intrinsically or fundamentally understand that. Yes, yes, which is why you sometimes, I think, see two translators mm. because it, I think it probably is quite a hard job to do. Yeah. Of course, in a country of millions of people, it's crazy to think that you can distill the essence of a country down to one voice. But if you think about Australian writers, they do often capture something that is very distinctly Australian and recognisable to us. Yeah. And so I think that may apply to other countries and other mm. cultures when people are writing in their own in their own language. So the first book uh, that I read is called Tomorrow They Won't Dare to Murder Us by Joseph Andras, and it's translated by Simon Lesser. This was fascinating. It was first published in France in 2016 as De Nos Frères Bless, which means Of Our Wounded Brothers, and it was Joseph Andras's first uh, debut novel. And I do need to give quite a bit of background to this one before I talk about the story because I think you need to understand the background a bit. It's a tiny book. It's only about 135 pages. And it looks at the period when Algeria was a French colony. And I knew absolutely nothing about this at all. I knew nothing about Algerian history. So it was absolutely fantastic to read this and to then have to go and research the background so that I could understand what was going on. I just love learning new stuff. So anything that sort of sparks my interest like that, I just love. So Algeria is the biggest country in Africa and it's up the top between Morocco and Tunisia and Libya and it's got a big coast on the Mediterranean and then it goes right down to desert in the south. So it's quite an interesting country from a topographical point of view. And the French invaded Algeria in 1830 and it was the first colonisation of an Arab country since the time of the Crusades. And it has a very strategic position for trade mm, yep. and a really fascinating history as part of the Ottoman Empire. And, of course, Algerians wanted independence from France. Mm. And there was a war which went on from 1954 to 1962. So, I mean, we complain about the pandemic, which has gone for, you know, 18 months. This was a, a war that went for eight years. Yeah. And Algeria did eventually win its independence and... This whole history is quite a shameful part of France's history, I think. And this little book is a fictional story about a real person named Fernand Yveton. And Andras is going back and revisiting history and looking at events through modern eyes. And I find these re-examinations mm. completely fascinating. And I've had a few conversations with friends about what it's like to revisit things from the past and then look at them through a 21st century yes. lens. And it's not even so much a 21st century lens, but a 2020, 2021 yes. lens. I think we just see things very differently. So, Fernand Yveton was born in 1926 in Algeria, which is the capital of Algeria, and he was born to a Spanish mother and a French father, and he became active in the Algerian Communist Party, as his father had been, and he joined the National Liberation Front, which was fighting for independence. And he was what is known as a pied noir, which is black feet, and these are the people who often uh, left Algeria after the mm. war. They're sort of the group that were not perhaps not native to Algeria. And his organisation gave him a bomb in a shoebox and he was tasked with setting it off in his workplace oh, at the Algerian Gas Company. And it was always understood that there were to be no deaths. It was made very clear, no deaths. 
So in order to not injure anyone, it had been set with a timer to ensure that it was set off when the place was empty at night. Because of his political affiliations, he was followed and he was caught before the bomb was exploded and nobody was injured. Mm -hmm. But he was arrested, he was tortured by the French police and he was sentenced to death. And he was the only uh, revolutionary out of 198 to be executed Mm. and he was killed at the age of 31. He looks much older than that in the photos. Yeah. And he was executed even though he killed nobody and even if it had exploded, it would not have killed or injured anybody. Francois Mitterrand was the Minister of Justice at the time and he was in favour of executing Fernand. Do they still execute people in France? Well, they did back then. Yeah, wow. So the story opens with Fernand sitting in the rain and he's waiting for a car and it's narrated by an omniscient narrator and it's written as though it's sort of stream of consciousness. So it does jump around in time a lot, like from paragraph to paragraph. There's not even a sort of a gap between the paragraphs. So it does take a bit of getting used to. And the car arrives and a woman hands him two shoeboxes, which contain a bomb each. And Fernand only has room in his backpack for one. Uh, He heads out to a little storeroom on the property of the gasworks where nobody ever goes. And he plants the bomb, which is timed to go off after the plant has closed. Then he goes around into the front entrance and he works as a turner at the gasworks for the day. And then at four o'clock in the afternoon, the police arrive at work and all hell breaks Mm. loose for him. And the police know that there were meant to be two bombs. I think they found a note that gave directions about two bombs. Mm. And so begins their torture of Fernand. And the story charts what happened to Fernand up until the point of his execution. And it's completely gripping. I mean, as you know, I'm a bit of a chicken, but I found it all very readable. Um, Maybe I'm toughening up, I don't know, but it wasn't too much for me and I was able to sort of read it sort of from an intellectual point of view rather than Mm. being too emotionally drawn into the story. And I mean, I'm sort of horrified by it, but it wasn't overwhelming. But the author takes us back in time to when Fernand had met Helene, his wife, beautiful wife and charts the first few years of their marriage which was a very happy marriage and then it covers his lawyer's attempts in the trial and the appeal which all happened within days of Mm. his arrest and then it attempts to petition the government in France to commute the death sentence and it's just you know it's a complete page turner this is not a book that I would have picked up for myself Mm. but it was recommended to me by the wonderful booksellers down at Text and Co bookshop in Dunsborough when we were down south on holidays and I'm so glad I read it. For me, like everything in 2020 and 2021, it raises more questions than it answers Mm. and that's just been the story of my life for the Mm. past years. So I have been Googling all sorts of things about Algeria and the colonisation by the French and the mistreatment by the French of the native Algerians, all sorts of things and I think I'm probably going to (laughs) find myself reading another book on that subject of the colonisation because now I'm just completely fascinated by the whole thing. But just the book really does make you reflect on having another look at someone who didn't kill anybody and was never going to kill or injure anybody and who was acting probably now we would say quite justifiably in a situation where 
the government was being very oppressive to the native Algerians, mm. we would probably take a very different Absolutely. view of it. So it was fascinating. So that was tomorrow, They Won't Dare to Murder Us by Joseph Andras, mm. and it was translated from the French by Simon Lesser. Mm. What about you, Lou? Oh, well... <laughs> We have not collaborated today. No. At all. Uh, so it's very interesting. Both of my books are books set in France oh. and both of them are written by, in one case, a French Algerian and in the next case, a French Senegalese. So, Unbelievable. Yeah, but really very interesting, some of the things that no you said. Idea. I didn't want to butt in, but it's it's some certainly not story parallels, but, um, well, actually, the, the book you have just mentioned is very similar to my first one Gosh. in some respects. So this is People Like Them by Samira Sidira, um, which was published by Raven Books, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Now, the author Samira Sidira is a French-Algerian writer. Wow. And an actress. And she wrote this book after reading about a real-life murder case in a village in France in 2003. So, again, very strongly drawn from, you know, an existing case. That case involved the disappearance of an entire family and it just caused this huge uproar and fascination in France. And like you... I started Googling. I had no idea. <laughs> I know. It's incredible. We were it? in the same region of the world. Synergy. And because a family appeared to vanish into thin air, they left their lights on, the fire was oh. blazing, the dinner was in the oven, and the oh, table no. was late. Now, Sadira's book came out in 2020, and it was translated from the French by Lara Vignal this year. And she's a very interesting translator. She specialises in North African literature. Wow. She's translated a, a lot of books. The story is set in a small fictional French village, Carmack, built on the side of a river, and it's hidden from the road by a pine forest in a deep valley. So, you know, it, oh, it's quite atmospheric yeah. and it feels very picturesque. The village in the book is described as peaceful, calm and orderly. And you know from the get-go, so it's not a spoiler, that an entire family has been killed in the village. The narrator of the story is Anna Guillot, who is the partner of the perpetrator. Again, oh. the parallels are incredible. Yeah. Uh, the perpetrator is a constant Guillot, and it's in some respects it's sort of epistolary because Anna is writing her account to him. Right. She's telling the story from her perspective, expressing her feelings, trying to make sense of their lives, uh, what has happened, and, and asking him why. And actually, from her perspective, it's obviously a really awful story. It's horrific. But it's also quite moving and heartbreaking yeah. because she is the narrator. Obviously, from his perspective, it's just senseless and gratuitous. But I was moved in some yeah. respects by her narrative. She sits in court during the trial. She listens into the hearing and she recounts the prosecutor's questions for us and her husband's answers. So we, we learn in graphic detail of the murder of the whole Langlois family who are relatively new neighbours of the Guillos in Carmack. Oh. It's a very, very short book. Um, it's less than 200 pages. So I want to be really sort of sparing in what I review. Yeah. I can say that the Langlois family are black. There's never been a black family in this village and they are attracting attention. Oh. There's a bar in the village, Francoise Bar, where some of the old white locals congregate to drink and gossip. And they're particularly interested in the fact that this black family appears to be very wealthy and, and doing very well, building a beautiful new chalet next door to the Gulos. 
the only people that these old white men have to compare to this new family are the Senegalese soldiers they encountered in the Algiers War, uh-huh. about whom they have little positive to say. So the racism doesn't hit you, you know, between the eyes. It's it's more subtle than that. Yeah. There's, you know, the odd inappropriate comment, but there's such an undercurrent in this book. And as well as sitting during the trial, Anna also reflects back for us about the beginning of their relationship when they met in high school, when her husband was this very promising young athlete. Oh, this is so similar to my book. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, it is. And she she sort of had plans to become a nurse and she follows their story to the village in Carmack, living there with their two children, and then their new relationship with this new family who are building the house next door, the Langlois. And that's really all I want to say about the story because I don't want to give too much away. It's a really intimate book because you are obviously in Anna's head and there's this sort of, at times, a real sense of heightened anxiety. And I sort of thought about this quite a lot. I, I think when you experience a significant sort of traumatic event in your life, it's perfectly natural to go over all the details. Yes. You know, you're, you're sort of, you're thinking about everything leading up to it and everything afterwards. It. You're, exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a process. So I guess when I said earlier it's epistolary, it's not so much she's addressing her husband. In some ways it's a conversation she's having with herself yeah. in her head. And maybe it's a conversation that had he been there, she would be having yes. sort of with him. She's really trying to come to terms with what's happened in their lives. And so for that, in that respect, that was a completely original read for me, you know, to read the account of the person who's closest to the perpetrator. And deeply affected and not really um, part of what happened. And to have such a a line drawn and having to start completely again. And so, look, I really, Mm. really, really enjoyed it. In 2008, Samira Sidira, she'd sort of acted for two decades and I think she was out of work and she became a cleaning woman to a very wealthy family. And the parallels also between this book are stark. So she's obviously drawn on on a lot of her experiences. Um, It was the winner of the Prix Eugène Dabi, which is a French prize, and it's definitely worth a read. This Mm. is Samira Sidira, People Like Them, which obviously is a very pejorative title of the book and that's translated by Lara Vergon. Well you can read that two ways. Yes. People like them or people like them. Yeah. (laughs) What about you? What's your second book? Yeah so my second book is called Madonna in a Fur Coat by Sabatin Ali and it's translated from the Turkish by Maureen Freely and Alexander Dorr. Sabahatin Ali wrote this in 1943 and there's sort of a little bit of an interesting story about that which I'll come back to. He was born in 1907. He was a teacher, a journalist, a poet and he edited a satirical newspaper that was very critical of the fascist government Mm. and he was pursued by the Turkish government because he was so openly critical of it and his writing was often censored and he was jailed a number of times. And he was ultimately killed in rather mysterious circumstances. Well, put it this way, someone claimed responsibility, but it was believed by some that it was covering up that the government had actually killed him. But he was killed on the Bulgarian border as he tried to flee Turkey in 1948. So he was only about 41 when he died. 
And there's a perturbing parallel with the subject of my other book, mm. the Fernand Yverton book, who was also actively critical of the government. Uh, I did not choose these books for this reason. I did not know what any no, of them were no. about. And with you and I, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I know. It's incredible, yeah, isn't it, really? Yeah. We just mm. selected things mm. that we thought looked interesting. So mine is another small novel. It's almost exactly 200 pages, and it's not a huge story. So there's not as much to say about it as with some books, but it's an incredibly powerful story and and one you just cannot put down until you reach the end. I really loved it. I bought it ages ago when some of my Instagram followers from Turkey had recommended it to me. Oh, fantastic. And I'd never got around to reading it, so I'm so glad that I finally have. It's basically a story within a story. It's set in the 1920s and it opens with a young man talking in the first person and he's recounting the story of how he was down on his luck, down and out in Ankara and he'd been sacked by his employer and he didn't know why and they'd said they were trying to save money but then they'd gone and hired somebody else two weeks later. And he's become increasingly so ashamed of his inability to get a job that he feels he can't even ask any of his Mm. friends for help. And so he's walking along the street and everything's pretty grim and he runs into an old classmate, sort of a friend, more of an old classmate, who is doing really well for himself. Mm. The classmate says, what are you up to? And he says, well, I'm unemployed at the moment. The classmate says, come and see me in the morning and we'll see what we can do. So he goes to visit this classmate and his friend This guy gives him a low-level job in his company as a clerk and he starts work in the company and he is sharing an office with a man named Rafe who translates all of the company documents from Turkish to German and German to Turkish, Mm. which is very meta for us that we're doing an episode on translation and this book is about a translator. So this translator, Rafe, absolutely intrigues the narrator because he's quite an unusual guy. He's incredibly self-contained. He's very quiet and unemotional and he doesn't mix with the other staff. Nothing can ruffle him. He's he's, he's quite aloof and there's something a bit mysterious about Mm. him. And gradually the narrator gets to know Rafe and Rafe's wife and children and extended family with whom Rafe lives. It's sort of this house with about four families connected, but each family is sort of in one bedroom, sort of Mm. not the greatest circumstances. And through a set of circumstances when Rafe becomes ill, the narrator comes into possession of a journal that Rafe has written, and he's written it about an experience in his life that shaped him as a person. And initially, Rafe says, you know, look, he's quite sick in bed. And he says, I want you to just burn it, throw it in the fire. And the narrator says, oh, I don't really want to do that. And in the end, I think Rafe sort of says, okay, well, you can read it. I think he doesn't really care. Either way, he's quite ill. So the narrator goes home and overnight reads the journal. So most of the novel is epistolary Mm. (laughs) because it's Rafe's journal telling the story of events when he was a younger man and the events which shaped him and made him what he became revolve around his having left Turkey as a young man and going to Berlin ostensibly to learn 
the business that his father was running in Turkey. His father had said to him, I want you to go and work for some competitors in Berlin and learn some new things and, and learn the business and then bring them back mm. to us. And Rafe had agreed to this and the father, I think, was paying his, his board in Berlin. But really, Rafe has no interest mm. in learning anything and bringing anything back. He just wants to get away from his family. And then he's in Berlin and he's sort of half-heartedly going to these competitors, but he's also wandering in and out of art galleries and walking around. And he goes into an art gallery and he sees a self-portrait of a beautiful woman who is a Madonna in a fur coat. Mm. And he reads the description of the painting and it's a self-portrait. And then he meets the painter named Maria and... It's their love story, basically, and it's absolutely the most fabulous story. It's told with great detail and immediacy mm. um, because it's his journal in his head, you know, he, and I think when he wrote it, he was just writing it for himself. Mm. I can say almost nothing about it mm. <laughs> other than that it's a very big love story with a dramatic twist which I could sort of see coming, but nevertheless, I was very, very impacted when mm -hmm. it did. And after I had finished the book, I just sat with the closed book in my oh. hands, staring at nothing for a while, oh. just sort of processing how that had all happened and taking it in. It's a story that I don't think will ever happen again in our age of social media and oh, massive wow. connectedness. Oh, no, I want to read it. Yes, but you can see how a story like this could have happened mm. back in the 1920s when we weren't as connected. And it's oh, it's really powerful. Mm. And there was a tiny passage which I just thought is worth reading because I just, it really struck me. Rafe lives with extended family, some sisters and brothers-in-law, and there's, I don't know how many people living in this one house, but a lot. And they treat Rafe with complete disdain, even though he's the only really significant breadwinner. And the narrator is over visiting and he says, it was clear to me that Rafe Effendi's domestic situation was not at all pleasant. They treated him as if he were expendable and always in the way. Later, when I'd been coming and going for some time, I got to know these people better and they weren't bad people at all. Rather, they had nothing, absolutely nothing inside. All their impertinences came from that. It was the yawning void inside them that drove them to deride, scorn and ridicule others. And for this was their only source of satisfaction, their only way of knowing who they were. And... You know, I'm so fascinated by mm. things like narcissism and that sort of thing. And I th thought that was just the most brilliant description of a bunch of narcissists written by someone long before the term was ever mm. used and just completely understanding what drove these people. So I absolutely love that. I did have a little gripe about this book, which is something that I'm just sort of noticing more and more. And it's not about the book, it's about the publisher, but it's got beautiful French flaps, this book, and it's published by Other Press, which I think might be an imprint of Penguin, I'm not sure. And on my edition, the woman, Maria, is described as a beautiful half-Jewish artist. Mm. And I just, having read the book, mm. found this so annoying because to me it's sort of dog-whistle anti-Semitism. Yes. 
it's either that or it's designed to make Maria appear more something. I don't know whether it's more tragic, more exotic, more interesting. I'm not sure. But my recollection, having read the book, and I read it quite closely because mm. I knew I would yes. be talking about it, I'm pretty sure that the woman, Maria, only once in the book mentions that her father was Jewish. She sort of, as, as yes. people do when yeah. they fall in love, yeah. she's telling her, her, her lover, her life story. My mother was this, my father, we know what country they came from. And she says once, my father was Jewish, my mother was whatever she was. And I think Rafe says to her, oh, does that mean you're Jewish? And that, mm. that's the end of it. It's never discussed again. And there isn't an undercurrent. It's a tiny detail. This is the 1920s. Yes. Her Jewishness or half-Jewishness or whatever yeah. has absolutely no so bearing it, on the it's plot. It's definitely the publisher trying to think that they're making it more interesting or absolutely. more. Absolutely. Which is just, it's just false, isn't it, really? Yeah. I just found it very irritating because it just, I mm. just didn't think it was necessary to do that. So mm. publishers, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> The interesting little thing about this book is that it was published in 1943 mm. in Turkey and it was published in Turkish. It was, wasn't translated until 2013. And the interesting thing is that it's become very, very popular in Turkey. So it, when it was published, I think it sort of went unnoticed. So for 60-odd years, it was just fairly unpopular, unnoticed. It's now incredibly popular. Yeah. It's I have read different theories. No one really knows why. There's one theory that it sort of challenges the male-female stereotypes. Yes, and okay. there's a theory that Maria is more masculine, she has more masculine qualities and Rafe has more feminine yes. qualities, which I personally mm. did not see when I was reading it. But And, of course, Turkey is, has become extremely critical of any sort of LGBTQ awareness and sort of stamping out any sort of acknowledgement that people yeah. might be different and there is a b belief that this book is one that sort of flies in the face of all that, yeah. I suppose. And there's a lot of issues relating to the the Turkish populations, communities within Germany as well. Yeah, I think there's various theories as mm. to why it is, but it's, it's really popular now and yeah. it's sort of sat unnoticed on bookcases I want to read years. that. So that was Madonna in a Fur Coat by Sabat and Ali and it was translated by Maureen Freely and Alexander Dorr. Uh, what about you, Lou? What was your second book? Well, my second book is At Night All Blood is Black by David Diop, translated by Anna Moshovarkas, Moshovarkas, I think. I think that's how you pronounce her name, from the French into the English. And it's published by Pushkin Press. And it is the winner this year of the 2021 International Booker Prize. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Look, I have to give you the, a warning. This is a pretty confronting and savage book. It's very short. It's only about 145 pages, yeah. very short indeed. So, again, I'm afraid I'm going to have to exercise some brevity. The story centres on two Senegalese soldiers, Tiralliers, as they were known, Alpha and Mademba. Alpha and Mademba are childhood friends. They are literally brothers in arms and they have volunteered to fight, volunteer, we might put in better oh, commas, okay. to fight for the French alongside Senegalese soldiers in the First World War oh. and, of course, the horror story that is the Western Front. They inhabit a trench with their French company, a company that's made up of 
Chocolats, which is the name Alpha and others use to describe the African soldiers who fight alongside the French. And there are also fellow white French soldiers in the trench as well, with whom they get on very well. And every day, their leader, Captain Armand, blows his whistle and they clamber out of the trench into oncoming German fire. And the Germans have become very adept at uh, hearing the whistle and sniping off the French soldiers. And so the senseless slaughter begins day after day. And Diop paints a very, very vivid and moving picture of the not only the sort of bleak landscape uh, around the trenches, but but also just the futility. It, it's very Wilfred Owen, Dulce Decorum Est, yeah. save that, of course, it's through the lens of soldiers who have come from Africa, Gosh. which is not a perspective that we not often really. read. And again, like you, I became fascinated mm. and I started going to Google and, and reading a lot more about this. You know, this, these are the soldiers that came effectively to fight alongside their colonial masters. Yeah, and it had nothing to do with No, like the Indian soldiers with the British. So it's very complicated, their participation in the war. Indeed, in many, a great deal many wars after that as Mm. well. And I just want to read a little passage here because it sort of just raises a few of the issues. This is Captain Armand talking to them. You, the chocolates of black Africa, are naturally the bravest of the brave. France admires you and is grateful. The papers talk only of your exploits. So they love to sprint into the battlefield to be beautifully massacred while screaming like madmen. But I know, I understand, it's more complicated than that. The captain's France needs our savagery, and because we are obedient, myself and the others, we play the savage. I became savage intentionally, but it's a role, it's a lie. Oh, so Alpha is the narrator of the book. Indeed, he is the entire book. It's entirely his story. The book opens with Mademba's death and Alpha remains with him as he dies. He has a wound to his stomach and much of his insides are outside. And Mademba is in abject agony and he begs Alpha to finish him off, but Alpha doesn't do that. Oh, my goodness. Lord. So it's not a surprise that Madamba's death obviously would affect Alpha deeply, but he, he acts in, in an extreme. Um, he starts to relentlessly sneak out of the trench at night to right the wrongs that have been meted out to Madamba. And the book is essentially about his complete mental decline into savagery right. and madness. And it's a savagery that his fellow soldiers tolerate for a while, but eventually they begin to feel unease. And, of course, they invoke the word savage even more because he is a chocolat. And Alpha is eventually sent to a psychiatric hospital and he's cared for by Dr Francois and also by Dr Francois's daughter, who is a nurse. And because he's trying to get well and he's resting, he starts to reflect upon his life. And and that's when we learn about Alpha and Mademba's backstory. We we learn about their parents, the village they came from, and what happened to Alpha as a young child and how he came to be so close to Mademba. And and while it certainly doesn't justify the actions of Alpha the man, it, it does give us some context. So I'm not going to say any more about the story because... There's a lot in there. It's For a book that's only 140 pages, mm. it packs the most enormous punch. The author, David Diop, was born in Paris in 1966, but then he grew up in Senegal. Uh, he now lives in France and he's a professor of 18th century literature. 
And this is his second novel, and it's been translated into 13 languages. So the International Booker Prize is awarded annually for a single book that's translated into English and published in the UK and Ireland. Right. And what I found really interesting, and I'd really love to hear people's views on this, is that the 50 thousand pound prize money is divided equally between the author and the translator and I, I have to be honest when I first read that I thought oh gosh yeah. the translator gets half but then I really reflected on sort of the role of translation mm. and this is a book that I wouldn't have read had it not been translated right. so I wouldn't have learned this yeah. story I wouldn't have learned about this voice this so perspective. all of these stories yeah. are able to be brought to us yeah we would just wouldn't because of the translation exactly and then I, I did a bit of a, a dive into also this idea that the translation process itself enriches the language yeah so I think you touched on that before this idea of of a author being able to just write in their native language yeah, without worrying about... Yes, how that will be perceived how in be perceived. Britain or yes. Ireland. So then the translator really has to understand oh. all those nuances. Yeah. And so I think it, it kind of benefits that language because it mm. brings new ideas mm, and, and, and new terms and, and all the rest of it absolutely. to it. So, so, yeah, I think this idea that translation lets literature travel yeah. is just yeah. so important. So I really yeah. applaud them that they are supporting yeah. translators by giving yeah. them it makes our the world profile. a much smaller world and it helps yes foster a better understanding about all the other yeah. you know, countries and cultures i think it's really important. essential yeah. um my first book i'm pretty sure has been or is being made into a film i'm not sure if it's being made into a film in its native language or not but that's another way in which translators yes. can be useful because it can bring it to a whole new audience who can then and, and then it might be turned into a screenplay. Yes. That's the other thing. Yeah. I think you really start to appreciate the enormity of the translator's job when you read a bad one. Yes. And yes. I still have such a vivid memory of I was reading War and Peace. Yes. And as you know, that book is so massive that, mm. and it was too heavy to mm. hold. I was, mm. you know, still early, very early on in it and it was really uncomfortable to read mm. at night. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll download a version and read it on my iPad, yes. which will be light. And nice. yes. yeah. And so I just downloaded a free Whatever version. Whatever came up. And yep. it was like I was reading a different book. You see, that's just incredible. And I, I read a few pages and I thought, this is very odd. Yeah. <laughs> this was yes. years ago. Yes. And I really hadn't had that experience. And so I got out, I went over and got out the book that I'd put away <laughs> and sat with it side by side with the good yes. translation yeah. and the cheap online yes. translation. Mm. And it was truly all of the beautiful language was gone. It was like the bare bones of the story. Yeah. There was no nuance. Um, it was just astonishing. Yeah, so I just put that away. It? It's extraordinary. <laughs> and ever since then, I've just had a completely different view about translation. Yeah, because it makes such a difference. I mean, I can honestly say with both of these books, I did not miss a beat. Like I didn't yeah. at every stage think, oh, that's an odd yeah, word or yeah. that jars or which does happen from yeah, time to yeah, time. Yeah. It happens when you're reading a book that was written in English. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone speak <laughs> translation. Uh, so that's All Night, All Blood is Black by David Diop, published by Pushkin Press and translated by Anna Moshafakis. Because I'm really, I'm going to have to get better with my Russian, I think. I'm going to have to <laughs> definitely improve my Russian. <laughs>
Now, I think you've got a life hack, Virginia. Well, I, I didn't have one prepared, but as I was driving here, I, I thought, what have, what have I been doing in the last few weeks? And so my life hack is what I've been doing in the last few weeks is I have completely switched off from all news. Oh, excellent. <laughs> for my mental health. So I literally have no idea what is going on mm-hmm. or very little idea of what's going on. But sometimes you just have to do yes, that. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Uh, so I have not been listening to my usual Corona cast. I just can't. No. I cannot watch press conferences about things that are going on in the eastern seaboard. I can't watch world news. Mm. I, I will come back to it probably next week. I'll rev it all back up again because mm. I don't like that feeling of not knowing what's been going on, but I I just really needed to. And sometimes it's good to do that for yeah. your brain. No, very good tip. So very that's, good that's tip. My, I love that life my hack. My life hack. I don't have any life hacks. No, no, that's all right. We only need one <laughs> thing. And what else have you been diving into? Uh, I've only got two very short things. One is on the subject of mental health. I have been uh, listening to the most beautiful podcast. It's on an ABC podcast and it's called Nature Track. And what it is, is it's all sounds of nature and birds twittering and... uh, How delightful. And you just put it on and I'll just... I'm going to bring this up because it's... You're going to play it? Put it up to the microphone? I don't know that it would pick it up because the... The sounds are quite um, gentle, very soft. The episode that I first listened to is called Heavy Rain and Desert Thunder. Oh, how beautiful. Um, and it is just the most exquisite thing to have just playing beside you. You can do anything with this going on because it's like white noise. It doesn't interfere with... Yes, but it's nice white noise. It's, so it's not elevator white noise. So heavy rain and desert thunder is so oh. beautiful. And there's lots of birds twittering in that one. Yes. I've also done Dawn at the Creek. There's more here. There's so many. There's a Midnight Frog Chorus. There's oh, I don't know that I need the Midnight Frog Chorus. Thank oh, you very much. I've got plenty in the garden yes, outside. <laughs> There's a Lyrebird Songs in a Gippsland Rainforest. Are they all Australian? I think so. Caroling Magpies in Western Australia. Oh, Gentle rain on a tin roof in the outback. Oh, uh, this is a fabulous recommendation. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Oh, so I love I, it. Yeah. Nature Track. Nature Track by ABC Radio. And it is just endlessly beautiful. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. And the funny thing is I've been putting it on and you know how you have a podcast and I might walk into another room and then I think, where are all those bird noises coming? And I sort of forget <laughs> that I've got these... <laughs> <laughs> or I, once I thought it started raining outside and it hadn't. Just, just uh, does Baloo react? Because I think Buster will bark if there's lots of bird noises in the house. I haven't had it around him mm. enough to, to notice. And B- Baloo doesn't really bark at anything. He's pretty chill. So, But I'd quite like that at work as well because if I'm and sort of doing interfere with anybody else. I'd quite like no to have it in my ears. In. Yeah, no, I'd quite like yeah. that at work. It's so, it's at my desk so and do that. soothing mm. and beautiful. And then the only other thing I was going to mention is that in a previous episode, I talked about The Dropout, which was the podcast about Elizabeth Holmes, who started at the company Theragon. Yeah, Theragon. Theragon, Mm. which was the blood testing company. And she is now coming up for trial. And so they've revved that podcast back up again and they've changed the photo from a photo of her into a sort of a painting of her. So she's no no longer in her Steve Jobs. I think she's still in the Steve Jobs, even though she no longer wears it. But it's a painting instead of a photo of her. And there are two 
new episodes about what she's been getting up to while they've been waiting for trial. And she's had a baby and um, she's got a, a new boyfriend. I found it very interesting hearing about People are that. absolutely fascinated, aren't yeah, they? So, They're absolutely fascinated. And that will continue on, I think, as the trial proceeds. So that's been really interesting to listen to. What about you, Lou? I know you've been diving into some interesting things, which I'm really keen to hear about. Yes. So first of all, I want to mention the podcast In Writing by Hattie Crissell, which you have already recommended before. So my friend, the author, Ros Thomas, reminded me about it, and I've been catching up on a lot of episodes. So Hattie's a writer herself, and she interviews other writers, some of whom are very well known. And actually, by the way, there is a recent interview that she did with Maggie O'Farrell that listeners could access, which is really good. But the thing I wanted to mention is she doesn't talk about the content of the books Mm. or the arc of the story. Mm. So her podcast is actually about the writing process, how they start to write, how they best write, where they write, what works for them. Yeah, Yeah, their writing habits basically, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, And it's not superficial at all. It's quite a deep dive into all of that. And they're very generous. Yes, super generous. telling her exactly how they do it and what they're looking at. She sounds so lovely, doesn't she? And she's just having this lovely chat with them. And I really enjoyed listening to how people sustain their writing habit. Yes. And a couple of the authors have uh, sort of talk about the fact that, you know, they've got this great idea, they get started, but yes. it's that really hard grunt That's the work. Thing of it's all. that sustaining it. Yeah. Yep. So thank you, Roz, for getting me back on that one. It's really good. In Writing by Hattie Crissell. She's on Instagram too. She's Is she? following. Yeah. Okay. I follow her. Yeah. yeah. No, she's a really good interviewer. Yeah. And then the other major thing I wanted to mention is that last weekend I was fortunate enough to go back to the Cinefest Oz Film Festival. Oh, yeah. In our glorious Southwest. This. Yeah. Look, it's obviously been super tough for people in the film industry over the past two years. Obviously, film crews haven't been able to travel to locations, so film shoots have been shut down. And some productions are only just starting again. And consequently, of course, lots of film festivals around the world have been cancelled or they've been moved online. And that's a very sort of different experience. So we're very lucky in our corner of the world to have our own little Cannes-esque film festival. The southwest of our state is a very beautiful place. There's Mm. beautiful beaches and forests, great wine-producing vineyards, great food. I know you get down there as Mm. often as you can. Mm. And so this is where we have this beautiful film festival. It's in its 15th year and it just gets better and better. And there was a full program of events. We were sort of back to full program this year. And so there were opening and closing events in three towns and 37 feature films to choose from, as well as lots and lots and lots of short films. And then there are four finalists for the film prize, which is extremely generous $100,000 film prize. I think it's the largest film festival purse in in Australia. Wow. And I didn't see the winner. But I'm going to see it in a couple of weeks because it's going to be released generally in a couple of weeks. Right. The winner was a movie called Nitrum, and I, I just wanted to mention it because it's a sadly it's a, a very sort of important Australian story. It's the story of a young man who forges a friendship with a young heiress who is equally as reclusive as he is, and then when that relationship breaks down the consequences are horrific. And so it's a dramatisation of the life of Martin Bryant, who was the young man who was responsible for the um, Port Arthur massacre in Australia. He 
allegedly, not allegedly, he did shoot and kill 35 people in Tasmania with a semi-automatic rifle, which he had bought legally. And it's the massacre in Australia that triggered the change in the gun laws here. I'm not going to go into any more details about the movie because I I haven't seen it, but I was speaking to quite a few people at the festival about it. And apparently it doesn't focus on the... Right. You know, the event. Okay. It focuses on all the bits prior to. And, and up, yeah, okay. his relationship with his parents and, and really his instability. And it's an amazing cast. Wow. And so, anyway, that's certainly worth mentioning. Nitrum, which is actually the word Martin backwards. Oh, I was so wondering that, what that Yeah. Is. Okay. Yeah, it's his name backwards. Apparently that was, uh, he was bullied at school and that's the name that he was given. Oh. Yeah, apparently. The big feature movie that we did see down there was just absolutely fantastic. It was The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. So The Drover's Wife is a short story written by Australian writer and poet Henry Lawson in 1892. Henry Lawson's story briefly is that of a woman in isolated Australian outback left alone with her children for half of the year while her husband is away droving cattle. And so it's sort of about her dealing with the hostile environment that she's been left in. And in the Lawson, the classic Lawson story, she's menaced by a snake that hides under her house and she eventually kills it. So the story's been completely reimagined by the very accomplished and beloved Australian actress Leah Purcell. Mm. And so she's rewritten the drover's wife story through the lens of an Indigenous woman, Molly Johnson, whose white husband is away droving. And Leah's published this as a new novel and she's also written the stage play, which was, I think it only had 33 nights, but it was just, I think it won the Heltman Award. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And now, of course, she's written and directed the movie and she stars in it. Molly is a very strong woman who will protect her children at all costs. She's heavily pregnant. So she sends her children away while she delivers her new baby. But before all of that can happen, an Aboriginal man turns up at her isolated home uh, and it turns out he is on the run from the police, accused of terrible crimes. And I'm not going to spoil it, but that's just the premise. It's a movie you sort of have to go and just immerse yourself in because the cinematography is just incredible. It was filmed in the Snowy Mountains in New South Wales just before covid locked everything down, so they they got it done. Wow. And it is visually spectacular. It's really, really beautiful. It was going to be released in October, but I believe now it's due for release early next year, and it's been bought by the US for distribution. Fantastic. And I think US audiences will really enjoy it. It has that sort of lawlessness, sort of edge of civilization, kind of Western feel about it. So that's The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. I can really recommend it. And, look, we saw some fantastic short movies down there, so some homegrown movies, Um, a gorgeous movie called Little Tornadoes set in the 1970s about a man whose wife ups and leaves their country town, leaves him with his children, and a young Italian woman in the town helps him out by cooking for his children and looking after them after school. It's utterly delightful. Wow. Um, that's Little Tornadoes. Uh, lots of others I can mention. Sounds fantastic. Look, Look out for them all coming oh. to the cinema soon. What a feast. Mm. Well, that's it for us and translated books. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I think we both really enjoyed reading 
all of our books, even though they were quite gritty, they're all very short. You can bowl yes. all of them over in sort of an afternoon almost. Mm. And you do come away feeling like you have expanded your horizons, which yes. is always a good feeling, I think. Uh, we are going to be having a fortnight off and then we'll be back after that with another episode. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up